This is episode 15 of The Janet Lewis Show. In the podcast, I'll be talking with people who have tapped into what they love and are living the life they imagined. Or maybe they didn't imagine it, but they've become super successful at what they're doing. They've been able to figure out what gives them energy or makes them happy and turn it into a business. Or they found a career that allows them to shine. We're going to talk about their life story, how they got to where they are, and what has influenced their journey. Today, we're talking with John Towsley, owner of BeWise, and until recently, also owner of MindMuse. BeWise is an IT service management company that offers e-learning products and services for IT services. MindMuse is a learning innovations company that creates powerful learning experiences. John is a leader and innovator in the IT and e-learning spaces. He started out as a system analyst and quickly moved up the corporate ladder. He has been the president of five different organizations, two of which he was the founder and owner. And John does not shy away from taking on challenges. And I'm sure he's had more than a few along the way. I'm looking forward to hearing about John's journey today. So John, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. I can't wait to see what we talk about. (laughs) Our conversations are always so interesting. Um, so I originally met John in 2006. Wow. Can you believe that? No. <laughs> I had to look it up. <laughs> well, um, I left my corporate job in 2004 and started doing some e-learning instructional design as a consultant. And to be honest, I'm not even sure how I got connected to BeWise. Um, but I think it was probably word of mouth and someone probably recommended or did an introduction. Uh, one of the first projects was for Rogers though, cause I also looked that up as well. Oh, there <laughs> yeah. you go. Um, anyways, what's important, um, is that John and I have worked together on numerous projects and there are so many things that I love about working with John. Uh, he has an uncanny ability to get people to think about the big picture and overall goals. And he's able to think outside the box and offers alternatives that people are not even thinking about in the moment. And the other thing is he is always so stoic. I don't think I've ever seen a situation rattle him or even raise his blood pressure slightly. Um, With John, there's always a solution to every problem and there's always a way to overcome any obstacle or challenge that is presented. Those are the things, three things I love about you, John. Well, thank you. There's many more. (laughs) Um, So John, perhaps we can start off uh, with a little bit of your history, like where did you grow up? What was it like? Um, What were you passionate about when you were young? And then we can move into... Um, your career and how you made decisions to get to where you are today. Sure. Uh, Well, I was born in the Toronto area, Mississauga to be exact. My parents lived in Streetsville apparently on a uh, snowy November Friday the 13th. I was born on Friday. I was born on 13th too. Awesome. There you go. So apparently that's my lucky day though. It's never panned out. Uh, My first memories are from Ottawa. My parents moved there they were both teachers, although my mom was not teaching at the time. She was staying home with my older brother and I. And that's my first memories are there. Uh, we lived there till I was seven, I guess. And then uh, by that time, my dad had uh, become a principal and then uh, got a job as what they called an inspector in those days, which was, a, like a, I don't know what they call them now, superintendents or something. So he would oh. go around and visit schools. And, yeah. And uh, that, that posting was in Pembroke, Ontario. So we lived there for two and a half, I guess, almost three years. Uh, so a lot of my early memories are, you know, Ottawa transitioning into Pembroke. Um, some interesting influences, I think, there. Um, not so much from Ottawa. P- 
Pembroke's uh, an interesting town, right? It's basically a lumber town. Yeah, because uh, what size would it have been? Like, oh, small. Small. I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Population-wise, but yeah, I think I went to the public school. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there were probably no other options. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Well, there was a Catholic school, but you either went to one or the other. <laughs> but uh, no, no, it was uh, it was good. I, I think you know the biggest influence, and in it maybe relates to passions. Um, we spent a lot of time outside. And, uh, you know, a lot of vivid memories uh, with my dad, my bachelor uncle, my brother. Um, my sisters had come along by then to have two younger sisters. But uh, but typically winter weekends, we would go snowshoeing in Algonquin Park because you're so close. And uh, so, uh, you know, learn to be passionate about the outdoors and uh, and embrace winter, which uh, kind of carried through. And then... Uh, Are you still embracing winter? I do embrace winter. Yeah. Um, yeah, so then we moved to, uh, Dad got a job in, in uh, Toronto with the Ministry of Education, and we moved to Kleinbrook. So it's interesting, because your father is in education, and years later, you end up yeah. in education, but was that really your goal? Uh, no, but, it, but you wonder, right? I yeah. Mean, uh, yeah, my dad was in education, my mom went back to teaching, and she taught, my uncle was a teacher, um, my great-grandmother and great aunt, I think, were both teachers, so yeah, lots of teachers in the in the in the family and i think you know just by the way i was brought up and raised uh, um, educating is something that, that is kind of in my my blood if not my genes yeah right? no so, kidding yeah. wow so yeah but uh, you know and then i lived in kleinberg from the time i was 10 till i was 19 i guess and so during that time period like did you participate in sports did you have any other types of passions uh, I think mostly my passion being outdoors uh, through one of my good childhood friends uh, got involved with the Boy Scouts and actually mm-hmm. did a lot there, um, camping and traveling and uh, and had a, an interesting mentor um, through those formative years. And uh, it, it was kind of interesting. Kleinberg was a very small town at that time. I think 2,000 people probably, yeah. you know, mostly a bedroom community combination of sort of middle class to upper middle class executive types um but a very active community so we were active in the community and uh you know that became part of the foundation giving back to the community being social um and the combination of wanting to do stuff outdoors kind of drove us to the boy scout uh, world and and i think you know from a development developmental perspective as as individuals my friend and i one of the things we learned really early was if we wanted things to happen, we kind of had to make them happen. Mm. So it's no different than today. Nobody wanted to be the Boy Scout leader. So there was a bachelor doctor in town the first year, I think we were in Boy Scouts. He was the leader and then he got busy and went off. So I can't do this anymore. Um, so the next three successive sets of leaders, we basically found ourselves and talked them into doing it. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then... Uh, the way that Boy Scouting is structured, you know, after you finish Boy Scouts, there are more levels the next age group up, I think 14 and on or whatever it's called, Ventures. So we went back to this bachelor doctor and said, nobody else will do this. You know, you should. <laughs> you should. <laughs> yeah. He said, sure, I like you guys. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and then that opened up um, a whole bunch of interesting community um, actions, activism uh, as well as uh, some international experiences that I wouldn't have had. So there's all kinds of opportunities within those organizations to travel 
uh, you know, to things they call jamborees. Yeah. And uh, so we, we got involved doing a bunch of really interesting stuff. Um, and, and it had a big influence on um, my view of the world, I think, and my, my desire to, I guess in quotes, succeed. Um, or it, and, and by succeed, I mean to, to make solid contributions. And it, it's from such an early age, too. Yeah. Um, and you ended up going to Western, I right? Did. Yeah. Did, did you, from an early age, did you always expect or was it expected of you to go on to university? Um, yeah. So a couple things about that. There was a clear expectation to go on to university. My grandmother graduated from U of T in 19, early 1900s. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and both my parents... Um, Went to U of T uh, to Trinity College. I see where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> but Trinity College would not have me. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, I didn't try that hard in high, in high school. But uh, I get that. Yeah, but there there was an expectation that that uh, that all the kids would go on to uh, higher education past high school. It, it wasn't even a question. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, so, yeah, I, I, I did expect that, although I took a bit of hiatus, which Influence me, will get into that, but for sure, uh, business, absolutely not. So, yeah, what did you take at Western? I, I did my HBA uh, business degree. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, how did you like? I'm guessing you applied to U of T, you applied to Western, yeah. probably one other school. Uh, yeah, Queens, I think. Yeah. yeah. And then, how did you decide Western was the one? Well, they accepted me. Yeah. <laughs> that was always good back then. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. I got good, in. Good idea. <laughs> Yeah, so a bit of history there. I, uh, I another influence on my my background. Two things happened. Um, you know, four kids in the family. Uh, we always had a roof over our head, and we always had food, but there wasn't a lot of extra money floating yeah. around. Um, so, if, and partly because my parents thought it was a good idea. If you want money, go and work. Um, so, I guess grade twelve or so. At those times, there was thirteen grades. Um, I, I knew I needed a better summer job. I'd been waitering at McMichael's Art Gallery in Kleinberg and that kind of stuff. Um, and one of my brother's friends, um, his best friend, said, you know, Gio, my dad's looking for someone for the summer. So I went up and knocked on Norm's door. He was the vice president of service for uh, English, which is now Whirlpool. Oh, okay. And uh, so, you know, he talked to me for a few minutes and said, sure, you know, come on in. We can use you. And that was uh, really my introduction to business. Before that, I had, uh, partly because of the influence of this scout leader, I, I thought I'd you know, be a doctor. And uh, that was a great thing, you know. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, my parents encouraged it, I, partly because it's, it's prestigious and whatever. And they knew I had the ability, although I had typically not applied myself in great <laughs> quantities. But uh, so I, uh, I did take that job and uh, I just loved it. And what was the job doing? So the, the job was in the service division. And uh, Inglis obviously had dealers that did warranty work for them. And they wanted to do an audit of the warranty work because they suspected that there were false claims being made. So, you know, before the days of computers, what I literally did was sort paper and, uh, you know, look for the obvious things. So here's a refrigerator with the same serial number. And they switched the compressor on it three times. So it was oh. pretty obvious that, that that's not legit, right? So, yeah. So uh, so that's what I did. And, uh, you know, there were some savings to the company from that. And then that morphed into during that year and the next year, looking at the process of warranty, processing and claims, uh, flow charting it out, you know, 
making recommendations, designing a new process. And uh, I had a good life lesson there too. There was a gentleman who was the representative uh, for English in, in the northern part of Ontario, so New Liskard and Timiskaming and Timmins. And he uh, he came in and he met with me and a great guy. He wasn't condescending or about it, you know, I guess he knew I was pretty young and he, and he said, gee, that, that's good. That's a great idea. That's an interesting. That's a good idea. Uh, but here's what really happens in the field. And, and so if you can put that in the policy, but that's never going to happen because, right. you know, the reality in the field is that won't work. And, and so I, I took that lesson and, and I've always tried not to be part of a corporate ivory tower. So, you know, whenever you're building or looking at process or trying to get people to change the way they do things, either you or somebody else has to do the hard work, get into the field, observe, watch what's really going on and understand what will be required to make a change or make an adjustment if it's even possible. Right. Um, you know, you can't do that from a theoretical perspective and expect it to work. So, so that was good. Um, the other thing that, which is a big influence and it kind of fits into the same time frame, the, the same guy who was my Boy Scout leader slash mentor um, was turning 40 and decided he needed to take a break from his practice. He was a child prodigy and um, was already the chief of staff at a hospital had oh, been for wow. years. Um, I think he, he graduated uh, college at 18 or 19. So I think he was, he was practicing by the time he was 20 or 21. Wow. So, uh, so he'd been doing it for 20 years. Want to take a break. And another friend of mine with his parents had done a, a, a trip that interested him and me and some other friends as well. So, so we, uh, he bought a boat and, uh, we took it from Lake Simcoe down to the Bahamas and, uh, Lived in the Bahamas for a year, floating around, spearing fish. And, uh, wow. Yeah. And that had obviously a, uh, I still have a bit of a twitch, but uh, <laughs> it had an interesting uh, effect. You know, you talk in your introduction about me being stoic and, and not stressed. And I think part of that came from what we ended up calling tropical reality. So, What so, is that? <laughs> well, you've probably experienced it a little bit, but if you live in the Caribbean for a while, you understand why things don't happen and nothing moves quickly. And, and from my perspective, it's, a, it's this base understanding that, that all of those things that the Western world embraces in terms of, of quote, success and materialism and, and productivity, uh, you know, if you're living in a warm climate and there's bananas and fish and lobsters and uh, none of that stuff has anything to do with life and, and the satisfaction you might or your happiness you know right so, right so you have this tropical reality versus this western reality so and i'd experienced both because i'd already been in that summer job right and uh and, and so it had a, a a big influence on me and my my ability to keep things in perspective and uh and actually ultimately manage stress so so uh, that, that was a great year as it turned out the guy who owned the boat when we got to the bahamas said i can't do this because obviously he'd been a hard driver his whole life and tropical reality wasn't for him. <laughs> so he said, well, we're going to go back to Miami and we'll ship the boat home. And, and uh, so there were four of us in addition to him, five of us in total. One, the oldest guy next to, to up from me was uh, 21. He was on a co-op work term <laughs> from Waterloo. <laughs> that sounds tough. Yeah. And, and then three of us had just finished high school. And I said, uh, I just spent two years working to save the money to do this. We just got here. I didn't come here to see the coast of the U.S. I mean, I came to be, live in the Bahamas, right? Yeah. And we just got here. So he hummed and hawed and said, well, okay, uh, I'll go home and, and, you know, 
in exchange, if you guys agree to, we'll dry haul the boat and refinish it, put it back in the water, and, and then you guys can just stay here and I'll come back and we'll get the boat later. No so, way! Yeah. So we ended up in the Bahamas with uh, with four guys, three of my age, 19, the other, the oldest guy, 21. And uh, yeah, so we That's just... the biggest lesson learned on that trip, John. You know, <laughs> I did learn how to uh, consume rum. I laugh. We'd, we'd go into Nassau for provisions, and you could we'd buy a, a case of 12 uh, 40-ounce Bacardi Amber rums. And I'm pretty sure the price was 36 bucks US. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, my, my parents' only concern when I got home was that, you know, maybe drinking straight rum was not, uh, not a great thing. We didn't have ice, and we didn't have the water we had. It was in a galvanized tank, and it tasted awful. So we just didn't. Oh, my God. Anyway. Yeah, but that uh, sounds fun though. I don't think I'm an alcoholic still, so that's yeah, good. that's good. That's good. You survived. <laughs> Haven't it. had a drink for a week, and I feel fine. So, yeah, no, it's a, but it was a great, a great life experience. And as I said, it uh, looking back, I can see uh, a lot of ways that it, it tempered me. Well, especially at that age, like at 19, being in another country, kind mm -hmm. of on your own. Yeah. Like, yeah, you're with three other guys, but you don't have parents no adult right? supervision yeah exactly <laughs> yeah you better figure stuff yeah, out yeah no no female supervision either <laughs> which which can be a problem the, the only thing about floating around in the out islands of the bahamas there's really nowhere to get in trouble <laughs> nassau we had to be a little careful and probably did some stupid things that we got away with but uh, but otherwise yeah i mean you're out spearing fishing and you tend to travel with other boaters most of whom were either young families doing this as a voyage with their young kids yeah um, or retired people. I mean, there were really no other people in our sort of spectrum. Yeah. But that was good too, because we had it, people kind of adopted us and took a look out for us. And uh, you had to be a bit careful traveling in those days. There were pirates. And, oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. So then you got back home from this adventure. Yeah. And then did you go to university or I no? did. So did. what happened is... Did you uh, make it there? <laughs> like, while we were uh, we were away, we had to apply. And my, my uh, best friend there was uh, who was on the trip with me was applying to Western and uh, he thought he might go into business. And I thought, you know, yeah, I want to go into business too. So we applied to Western and uh, a couple of lessons there learned. I'll go fairly quickly through this, but I didn't realize when I applied um, at Western, um, there was no way to accelerate your entry into the business program. So you took two years of whatever you wanted, yeah. had some prerequisites, and then you applied to the business school. Um, and so in the first year we got back, I'd done pretty well in things like calculus in high school, but I remember one of the first week the calculus teacher gave me a quiz and I said, I know I answered all these questions, but I don't know what it, what it is anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I've done them all three times. And uh, and then the, I did the midterm and I got 62, I think. And yeah. I said, uh oh. This this isn't great. <laughs> this isn't gonna this isn't gonna work. But but partly because of my business experience and now my newfound love through my work experience, uh, you know, I recognized that this was kind of all or nothing. So when everyone else went to the library to study, I uh, took the phone off the hook and and locked my doors and uh, worked away in my room for three hours every night. Oh, wow. Uh, I, yeah. I really, Very disciplined. I really got disciplined. Uh, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, right? Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I ended up, uh, after a couple of years, I did end up getting in. Uh, and part of that ties back to the other experience, though. So, in the Boy Scouts, I had lots of opportunity to do things. I'd represented Canada on the world stage for the youth forums and uh, in uh, a couple of times and done some interesting projects in Kleinberg, uh, 
in the community. Um, So, you know, those things look good on a resume. They're, you know, achievements and out of the norm kind of thing. And that's a big part of that application. And so when you graduated from Western, um, I think I read your first job was as a system analyst. Did you have something before then? Nope. So I graduated in 1983, you know, one of the last great recessions. There's nothing about John online, as an <laughs> FYI. <laughs> and speaking of nothing, there were no jobs in 1983. Oh, really? So two years before me, the graduating class, I think their average was 2.5 job offers per graduate. Uh, we had contests for the worst rejection letters. Oh, no way. That typically started, dear student. <laughs> Sorry, we cannot take you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not even your name. Just dear student. Right? Um, so I, uh, I was thinking about this the other day. I, for whatever reason, I applied for a bunch of jobs. Nothing was coming. Nothing was coming. I had worked my way through university. Um, got married, actually. So Kelly and I got married the fall after my second year. So the fall. You after, did? Like, yeah. The summer. Fall? Spring. Sorry. The spring before my third year. So we I just started business school. We were married. Wow. Um, yeah. And the, uh, it was interesting. The dean brought her in and gave her a little talk to and said, you know, you're never going to see him. And he has to work hard and all this. But uh, we knew that going in, so we were ready for it. But, uh, you know, it was it was kind of situation. It was difficult for Kelly to get a job. Um, she was trained in food, in food service supervision. And uh, the hospitals weren't hiring and none of the big catering or <clears throat> um, you know, sourcing food companies weren't hiring in London. So she had work, but it wasn't great work. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it cost a lot of money to go to school, even in those days. So I had to get a job. I ended up getting a job in the Natural Sciences Computing Center as a computer operator. And I'd taken a couple of computing courses as well. Yeah. Um, so when you fast forward to graduating, there are no jobs. There was a recruiter from Nabisco Brands. And uh, I don't know why. I, I, she never told me. I didn't get an interview. But she called me up and said, I've seen your resume. You didn't get selected for an interview, but I want to meet you anyways. Oh. So I, that's what I said. So I went and met her. Um, and uh, she basically advocated for me. I went through the regular interview process with all the other people who did get interviewed. And nobody wanted to hire me uh, at Nabisco. But uh, there was, she knew of one guy in IT who had previously hired a business graduate who was doing very well. And uh, she basically worked with him to convince the VP of IT, who I did meet in the interview cycle, who didn't think I was a fit, that I would be great. And uh, it took months, but uh, finally I did get a, a job So why, why was she such a strong advocate for you? I don't know. She just liked you? I, I, yeah, I think she liked me and she knew or thought that I would be uh, a good fit based on my profile. And so it would be a success for her. Yeah. That's so and, funny. Uh, it's funny how you just meet these people on your journey who kind of yeah help you. Yeah, I tried to right? find her on online the other day, and I I I couldn't. But uh, anyway, uh, so so that's how I ended up in IT, and uh, you know it was interesting. So at that time, it was just the dawn of the microcomputer era. Yeah. So PCs had just come out. You know, the head office at Nabisco. There were I think five hundred employees, and we had one PC. And it was locked away in the IT room. You had to have a pass card. Like you know, 64K of RAM and two floppy disks. Right? Oh, my goodness. And anyway, after a couple of years, uh, there were several hundred. And some they said, well, somebody's got to look after this. So here, Johnny, why don't you do this? They tried me on programming and because uh, they knew I, I knew COBOL. Right? 
So one time the COBOL guy quit. So they said, well, you know, COBOL, you have, we have to make this change to the payroll system for uh, Sherbrooke, Quebec. I said, okay. So anyway, I ran all the tests. And everything went great. Everybody got paid till the month end. Oh, no. <laughs> then nobody got paid, which in a union environment is a bad thing. <laughs> so Johnny had to work through midnight to uh, fix that problem. And that discussion went like, you know, you really screwed that up. And the answer was, yeah, I told you I wasn't a programmer. <laughs> Which led to here, Johnny, look after the PCs. <laughs> anyway, but, uh, and that really started me on a new journey. I, uh, you know, that industry was, was just crazy, right? Um, burgeoning, you know, all the Apple, Microsoft, you know, in those days, Lotus and, and, uh, and it was all new and nobody knew what they were doing. And so I was spending lots of the company's money and, you know, all these vendors who sold to me were all driving around in Ferraris. And I said, I'm on the wrong side of this deal. Yeah, right? What's happening? <laughs> yeah. And then uh, Nabisco went through a, a big change. It went through that, uh, one of the first leverage buyouts way back. There's a movie about a, in a book called Barbarians at the Gate. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. There's a company called KKR. That did a leverage buyout, bought them, and, and the net result was, you know, when a leverage buyout, the company has to make has to pay for it. So the, the purchaser has borrowed the money to buy the company, and they know that if they split off and auction off the assets, they can then pay back the loan, and it'll end up with something smaller, but that they it won't have cost them anything. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So so they did that, and then you know my analogy is they kind of said. To me, well, you know, here's a shovel, dig a hole, pull the dirt in on top of yourself. And I was like, why would I do like why would I do yeah. this? You know, I've spent another five years here, and at the end of it, there's no job for me. Like you're telling me that now. And then I still had seen all these guys driving Ferraris and said, Okay, I'm on the wrong side of this. So uh I made one of the you know significant strategic decisions of my life. Microsoft was hiring, Canada, they had five employees. And I said, oh, who wants to work for the company that makes Dawson Multiplan? That's going nowhere. <laughs> two of my business school classmates ended up at microsoft both of them uh microsoft multi-millionaires yeah <laughs> get in early Joe. Whoops. get in early <laughs> yeah missed that boat so i ended up uh <laughs> kelly was pregnant with scott her first child and uh i left to uh, start up a couple guys had come to sell me something two guys from new york uh sell me computer training um Said, you know, you should use us because this, they had this great presentation that actually addressed all of my pain points. And no one else had even bothered to come and talk to me. So we were we were spending money on computer training, but nobody had sold to me or talked to me. And thought, you know what? These guys, this this makes sense. And they wanted to start a Canadian company for a number of reasons. And so the deal was I would start the company, run the company, uh, be their money. I'd get stock options. We were going to go public, which we did. Um, and uh, that awesome. Right? Yeah. So I can become an entrepreneur and I didn't even think about it that way, but I can run my own business uh, without, with other people's money. Yeah. Lower risk for sure. Much lower. Yeah. And and people thought I was a risk taker. They said, oh, you know, you're like a crazy man. You know, you scuba dive and you ski and you, you're going to go start this company and, and you just had a brand new baby. And I, said, I don't see a risk. If I, it doesn't work, I'll just go get another job. And yeah. Didn't, didn't occur to me that that was a risk, but, uh, but anyway, we, uh, so we got started, and uh, Terry, the guy who was the president, told me when we started we had 150 grand available cash to, and we did a cash flow analysis and said that would get us till I could start generating cash, take about eight months, and everything was good. 
So anyway, shortly after we started the company and I'd signed up a, some real estate down on Bloor Street and gone out and tried to get lease furniture and equipment and nobody would lease us furniture and equipment because we were new and we didn't have any other assets. And so I said, you know, bad news, we're gonna have to spend some of the 150 grand on computers and, and equipment and uh, furniture. And he said, well, that's a problem. I said, why is that? He said, because we don't have it anymore. What? <laughs> what? That's what I said. Beg your pardon? <laughs> Where did it go? They spent it on something else. Um, so anyway, we uh, I learned a lesson in how to bootstrap. Wow. Because I was already into this, right? Now yeah. I'm not giving up now, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, so uh, we were hand to mouth for ooh, 12 to 18 months, probably. Wow. It was... Uh, so I got right into very quickly understanding cash flows and and uh, and understanding. You, know, you referred to me being stoic. I mean, one of the early lessons was in a leadership role like that, you're on all the time. Yeah. So so I may know of these stresses, but one of my colleagues from Nabisco had quit her job at Nabisco. I still couldn't figure out why, but uh, she wanted to work with me. Right. So I hired her as a trainer and. You know, she came to work in the basement of my house. Kelly's upstairs with the baby and, you know, it, it, crazy. It, crazy, right? Yeah. And uh, until we got the office suite and I thought, well, I mean, I can't, I, and I have people now who have made commitments to me based on my, you know, what I've told them. So we'll, we'll just figure this out. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's do. one of the things that I found, like when you hire people, it's just so much more stress. Absolutely. Because you worry so much about making sure you're paying them yeah. and you have that money coming in. Oh yeah, right. it's uh, it's interesting. It's not kind of one of my pet peeves. Like I, I, I admire anybody who goes off on their own and does things. Um, I get moderately annoyed when, when people talk about themselves as entrepreneurs. Yeah. And you know, I think the the definitions I've seen that that makes sense to me are, you know, you're not an entrepreneur unless you mortgage your house to make payroll. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah. You, you you really aren't. Um, and and it's just it's just because that label I think has prestige to it. And it has, but it's also become super trendy yeah. in the last two to three years. Yeah. You know, like everybody wants to be yeah. this right now. Exactly. Um, but most people don't even know what this is. Right. They don't understand the reality of it. Right? No. Yeah. And there's a big difference, you know, between being self-employed and being an entrepreneur. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And, and the, the funny part for me is, you know, I thought, if I ever thought if I wrote a memoir, I'd probably be called The Reluctant Entrepreneur. Because yeah. <laughs> I, you know... Even in, so, so after that training company, we went about five years. We did go public, did all kinds of interesting stories. I learned a ton. But um, eventually, the company was headed, at, we were headed for a brick wall in terms of cash flows and profitability. And so I said to my partners in New York, you know, in order to, to get out of this, you have to sell an asset. You know, and you've got like less than a year to do this because nothing's, we can't change other things. Right. So you should probably sell the Canadian business because it's the easiest thing to do. Um, and I was cautiously optimistic that I could do some kind of a, an employee buyout. And in the end, that didn't transpire. And uh, although uh, what ended up happening is it got acquired by some venture capitalists and I stayed on with that, with that business. Um, but, but it's, uh, you know, it's an interesting lesson in terms of, understanding uh, the, the risks that you take and what entrepreneurism really is. Yeah. And, and even at that stage, 
it wasn't my money still, yeah. <laughs> you know? So, so I didn't think of myself as an entrepreneur. I didn't yeah. refer to myself as an entrepreneur. Um, and in fact, when I eventually managed to get fired from that job, which took me a couple of years to, to figure to, out how to get fired. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, there's a story there too, but, um, you know, I, I had done a, just before that, I'd done one of these magazine surveys, you know, on, could, would you be an entrepreneur? And it pretty clearly said no. Right? Oh, really? Yeah. yeah not- but I, th- I don't know. I feel like so probably some of those early surveys might have been very narrow in their focus. I think so. Right? Yeah. yeah well, and who knows? It was yeah. maybe in Business Magazine or something. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it wasn't uh, created by uh, anybody with uh, huge qualifications. Anyway. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I, what what I did know is, I mean, that experience, I, I I learned a lot about about managing stress, and I learned a lot about being overstressed and not being able to, to cope with the stress. Right. Um, so well, I think the people who worked for me, well, I know they still had the perception that, you know, I had things under control. It was wildly out of control. Right. Um, and it was taking a personal toll on me, and and uh, actually the same friend of my brother's who had got me that summer job um, had a personal tragedy. His, his son uh, was killed in a car crash. And my brother was at West. He couldn't come to the funeral. And he said, you got to go. And I said, no problem. And, and you know, I sat there and, and I, I watched that process and how much pain he was in. And uh, I just realized I, I'm stupid. I'm traveling three to four weeks a month. I never see my kids. You know, Kelly, literally, she'll tell you the story. But one time my boss called and said, hey, you know, I know you just got home, but we need you somewhere on Monday. And she said, uh, why don't you just keep them? Like, oh, no. <laughs> just send the checks to me, right? You can have him. Yeah, because I literally, I'd come home and just screw up everything, right? Because Kelly had a routine with the kids yeah. and everything. And then, you know, dad comes home and wants to participate. And, and I just realized that uh, it, it wasn't worth it. But it was it was a large organization at that time. We were pushing fifty million dollars in revenue with five hundred employees and I think thirty branches or something around North America. Wow! And, uh, so so how approximately how old were you? Do you think when you realized that? Uh, well, I can tell you. So nine, like late thirties or yeah, late thirties, thirty eight. Yeah, yeah, and I got in. I mean, I was. I got put into the position of running the whole North American operation. It wasn't what initially I was supposed to do. And I was still, I think I was whatever, 35, 34. So uh, even though I had the educational background and, and I like to think the smarts, I, I wasn't um, emotionally mature enough to handle that stress. Right. Um, and, uh, and my leadership skills weren't right for that kind of a, um, to run that kind of an operation. I mean, I, I did, um, I did eight acquisitions, I think, in 18 months. Wow. Yeah. And uh, and actually, that part I loved. I was really good at it, apparently, because the guy who owned the company had done 400 in his lifetime. He said, you're really good at this. So I took him at his word. <laughs> okay, if you say so. <laughs> yeah. The problem with doing the acquisitions is you become a deal junkie. It's it's really fun. Um, and it's 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 really addictive. But, but you got to manage the company after, you know. Near yeah. the end of the time... Slightly before I managed to get myself fired. And... Well, it's almost like it sounds to me, it's almost a little bit like gambling too, right? Mm. Like you're taking a gamble. Yeah. Oh, well, I, I called this guy one time and yeah. he, he didn't gamble. I said, I know you're not a gambler. He said, oh, I'm a notorious gambler. I just don't like play cards and 
gamble in the casino. I said, okay, well, I did this analysis on this company in Omaha. They want, I don't know, it was $190,000 to take over this business. And I said, all the numbers look good, but I've never even been to Omaha. And I don't have time to get there before we have to make the payroll Monday. So, you know, how much do you want to gamble? <laughs> <laughs> what was his answer? <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, he said, well, I don't know. And I said, well, okay. I said, I just don't have any, you've never given me any parameters here. I said, so it's 190 grand. Are we talking lunch money? Are we talking bet the farm? Somewhere in the middle, he said, well, we're not betting the farm, but it's not lunch money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Did he go for it? He did. He did. Yeah, wow. we ended up with a photocopier and a, a Microsoft certification to deliver training, I think, at the end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, anyway, you know, I, I, I learned a lot in there. And at points in that journey, um, I learned a lot about mental health and managing my own mental health. Um, you know, and I went through some really, really uh, hard times. And, uh, and, and ultimately, at the end of the day, would, you know, kind of lie in bed and say, okay, I think I can get through this. I don't want to go see a doctor. Because yeah. if I go see a doctor, they're going to prescribe medication to me. And or they're going to tell me, you know, you're having a nervous breakdown and you need to go on leave. And it was long before, you know, a lot of the stuff that's happened recently in terms of mental health awareness. Right. And it was more than just a stigma. I mean, there were implications. Oh, 100%. Right? So if you went down that path, it'd be like going to jail. Now you got a record, right? Yeah. And, and so I didn't even see that as an option. So I found ways to get through it and deal with it. And Kelly was really supportive. So what would you do to get through it and deal with it? Because obviously you're not talking to anyone about it except maybe Kelly or Kelly's yeah. seen the signs, yeah. right? Um, none of the things I should have probably, oh. I, I literally just toughed it out. Yeah. Um, I, I was still super busy. I, I didn't make time to exercise because I didn't really think I had the time. The biggest mistake. Huge. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't check my eating or, you know, um, and you know, I went through periods. I just literally didn't sleep. Wow. You know, I don't think I slept for more than an hour and a half at a time for, oh, probably six or eight months. You know, and uh, yeah, I was wired. Like, like, how would you feel? Oh, yeah. You wouldn't even feel like yourself. No, no, no. It's just brutal. Like, yeah. just, yeah, like. Is part of it, like, is part of it, too, when you're going through that, is some level of that, like, you're on autopilot. Like, this is what you have to do. You have to function. You have yeah. to blah, blah, blah. Some of it. Yeah, and some of it's just that, um, huh, determination, I guess, and, and the that underlying... I can do this. Don't quit. Yeah. I, I'll get through this. There has to be a way. Like I never, you know, I never had feelings of suicide or anything like that. It was just like, I got to, I know this is all stress. Yeah. So, so at an intellectual level, I was able to say to myself, okay, I know, I, I know this is just stress. One of the things that I, one of the benchmarks I always use, which is maybe weird. I look back and I think, you know, if you look at the, the great world wars, world war one and two, my grandfather was in world war one. My uncle died in World War II. And, uh, you know, my parents are young, old enough to remember. I thought, so guys went off the war, either didn't come back or lived in hell for four years. Yeah. They had real problems. These aren't problems. Yeah. Like, I, I, you know, I just got to figure out how to manage the stress down and how to deal with this. And so eventually, partly using those kind of benchmarks and just yeah. understanding luck, like, you, you know, there's not something physically wrong with me. I don't have a chemical imbalance. There, 
You know, and I'm not bipolar or depressive or yeah. this is stress related, right? It's, but it's almost like it sounds to me just listening to you. It's almost just like reframing, right? Yeah. So it's like, okay, this is a situation. How bad is the situation really? Right. And your determination, like was your determination for success or was your determination to get through? Like what was that motivation there? Um, you know, I think the one of the biggest drivers or, or one of the biggest stressors at that time was, you know, what's the perception of others? What, what are the yeah. kids going to think? Still what's my family going to think, right? You know, uh, it, it's that the social stigma of, of failing at something. Yeah. Um, but but my determination was was really, I, I think, the, the opposite of that, which was, okay, right? That, that's not an option for me. How do I get out of this? Mm. It's the, like survival. The, yeah. And to me, what I then I understood, and, and here I think where I started was understanding um, the concept of downside risk. So at one point, I kept looking and saying, I, I can't quantify the downside because there's so much going on. I don't actually know. Like if this whole thing goes south and it looks like it's going south, I'm not a shareholder, but I'm a director and an owner. So I, my name's on all kinds of leases all over North America. Yeah. So... So where's the bottom here? You know, so can I get sued? Can I lose my house? What's the probability of that happening, right? And and I couldn't quantify that risk. And so that led me to, okay, there's got to be a way to get out of this, right? Yeah. And the way to get out of it was to get fired, basically. No way. <laughs> to, to pass off all my responsibilities, give everybody else a fighting chance to make it work, but acknowledge that I'm not the guy, right? And ultimately what I said to the owners, hey, it's clear now, I'm not the guy. Right. So I'll find a guy. Right. And I'll pass on all my knowledge. And then eventually you're not going to need me. Right. And, and so we mutually agreed that that was the path we would, we would go. So down. you self-identified that even though you had um, built, helped build this company to yeah. a certain level, when it got to that level that you weren't the one to bring it to the next level? Or? No, it was, it was, I like to think that's a small part of it. Um, because I don't enjoy running large organizations like that. Um, although I, I like to believe I have the ability. The difference was, and this was a clear conversation with the owner, you know, we were flying back from doing an acquisition. He said, if it was yours, what would you do? I said, I'd stop. Stop the growth, consolidate into a, a centralized corporate office with all the central corporate functions, automate pieces that need to be automated, get the quality under control, and then start to grow. And uh, he said, "I disagree. It's all mm. about it's all about the footprint and the top line. It's your business, yeah, right." But but we fundamentally disagreed. And and interesting, later he said to me, "You know, I've, I've realized something." I said, "What's that?" He said, "Well, if you take a pile of shit and keep adding a little bit of shit at a time, pretty soon you have a big pile of shit." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's true. And so I took took that as a semi-apology or acknowledgement that maybe I was right and and he wasn't. (laughs) But, uh, you know, ultimately the business didn't work. I mean, it it, it just, it couldn't. So do you feel you exited at the right time? Yeah, anytime was the right time. Anytime was the right time. Yeah. And then I went through, I didn't do anything for, uh, I shouldn't say I didn't do anything. Kelly went back to work and I stayed at home and, and, uh, you know and cleaned the house and did the grocery shopping, which I... Oh, you did? I didn't know that Oh, I wasn't uh, very successful at that either, but... <laughs> <laughs> I got really? yelled at constantly, you know. 
in the grocery store because I'm going down the wrong side of the aisle or you know, I'm at the checkout and I'm moving the cart around and this lady looks over. She says, are you going forward or moving back or what? I'm like, <laughs> like, I don't think I belong here. I just want to put my groceries in the bag, lady. I don't know. Anyway. No, but I did. I stayed home and uh, yeah, it was that was a very rewarding experience in many ways. We had a, a house at that time and uh, it had a circular staircase and then it was kind of a bit open to the kitchen. I'm in the kitchen cleaning up and and from upstairs, my son was in grade nine or ten, I guess. I hear, "Hey, kitchen boy, make me a lunch." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "You get down here, and I'll make you more than lunch." <laughs> but yeah, it was fun. So and you then, stayed uh, at home for a couple of years. Then what did you? No, do? no, not years. Just I think eight months. Probably. Eight months. And I started doing some um, contract work, self-employed. Yeah. Well, I incorporated, but. Um, with some people that I knew from the industry, and uh, and it was right at that time that uh, we started Bewise. So it was uh, that was really the uh, so it's December twenty first of nineteen ninety nine. We incorporated. No way. I did it myself. I drove down to Queens Park and filed the incorporation papers, and uh, yeah, and uh, you know, still didn't think of that as particularly entrepreneurial, although by definition it, it was. It is. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, but we were relatively certain we had some business lined up that we knew how to run and manage and that we'd be cash flow positive pretty quickly. So I, again, didn't see risk. Yeah. Um, and when I talk about the reluctant entrepreneur, I mean, the reality is through the progression of building BYs and, and different companies, because we all followed our noses a lot, you know, which is what entrepreneurs do, right? You yeah. see opportunities, you assess the opportunity, what's the downside risk, Jump you go in. into it. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, somewhere along the line, you know, ended up in a situation where uh, where we were all in. Um, and, and back to uh, pretty high stress, but a very different kind of stress and, and uh, very, for the most part, manageable because when you're in control um, and it's your money and you're making all the decisions, you have, at least I think as an entrepreneur, you have the faith that that. I'll figure this out. Yeah. We'll make this work. And, yeah. and you know, my business partner, Rick, and, and uh, you know, we're, we're, it's a great partnership because we have very different sets of skills and, and, and you go through ebbs and flows, but, but I think without exception in 20 years, you know, if I got down for some reason and he was up or at least up enough to say, get your ass out of bed and get going, we don't, we're going to make this work. Yeah. Uh, and the opposite was, was true, right? If he that's, was struggling That's probably the value of having a partner. I've always Absolutely. shied away from that. Yeah. Well, I, I think partnerships are tough, right? In, in, in life and business. You know. Listen, I have a personal relationship, so let's bring up a business <laughs> one. It. Exactly. They may be easier. <laughs> they might be. Yeah, yeah actually. But that money is really involved. <laughs> well, yeah. And I think, you know, we, we, we managed even, not subconscious, consciously, but without explicitly stating it. I mean, um, you know, I, I, Rick's my business partner. I would say he's a friend, but we don't socialize very often. Right. You know. Um, so how did you and Rick meet in order to start BYS? Like, how did that well, even happen? Way back. So I hired him uh, when he graduated from Laurier. Um, he was a business grad. You already had BYS? No. Way before that. So where did so, you hire uh, him? In the training you? company with okay. the, my business partners from New York side. Yeah. When Rick graduated, 94 maybe, before that. Might be an earlier. It's an early 90s. earlier than that. 92 yeah. maybe. And uh, yeah, we hired him as a trainer and then pretty quickly realized that 
tall, dark, and handsome with great personalities. <laughs> Lots of ladies in the training class. You know? <laughs> yeah, not to mention, you know, that uh, people buying training typically are HR, and it's probably still true. I mean, typically are female. It's true. And uh, so, yeah. It, uh, for better or for worse. sales. Yeah, for better or for worse. I always said, I think you'd be better in sales, and, and he was very successful. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's what our... our uh, our relationship started. Um, and then uh, eventually he left and went in, into the financial planning sector, then came back. And then I left. That was when the, after the company had been sold, then I got fired and he was still there. And, uh, so actually what happened is his, uh, his father-in-law at the time, um, passed away suddenly and he just did one of those life wake up things. And we'd been humming and hawing about getting into business. And so, uh, me and her other initial partner called and said, well, are we doing this or not? And I, I'm, I'm working at home making some, I was getting paid in US dollars actually. I was making pretty good money contracting. I said, sure, because Let's I didn't see, it. like, the, what was the risk, right? Yeah. There was like zero risk from what I could see. And so you had BYs, and then also you ended up starting Mind Muse. Yeah. So Rick and I had been in the e learning business as far back as the early 90s. The, the training company we had, um, it's a long story. We got into the e-learning business. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah. And uh, we had sold quite a bit of e-learning. Um, so way back in the early 90s, Rick as a salesperson, he was he was the only guy selling e-learning. That's when we really started working well together. And uh, he had a backlog of orders, a quarter million dollars back then. And uh, this was way before any automated e-learning. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Although we were doing that, it's a connection to a company in Israel who had figured out a way to automate e-learning on a deck vax. And you captured the screens on the PC through a printer cable connection. It was crazy. So, <laughs> innovative at the time. It was super innovative. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so so that's how we, we got into that. We got back into that business. So we knew it. Um, and one of our contacts uh, called Rick and said, hey, I'm at Scotiabank. And uh, you got, you know, you did e-learning. Do you still do it? We need a new employee orientation program um, for our world, worldwide, <clears throat> a standard orientation program. And so it's got to be X number of languages and it had all these parameters. Um, so one of my other ex-employees had an e-learning business in Calgary. So we called him up and said, hey, Greg, you want to co-bid on this? So one day Rick walked in my office. He said, guess what? We're in the e-learning business. <laughs> <laughs> We won the bid, <laughs> and, uh, and and being the the cockeyed optimist sales guy, I mean, we we looked at a quick look at the industry and said, yeah, you know, this is great. We can diversify. We were in the IT staffing business, which was a bit of a tough slog. Yeah, we said, hey, let's just start a new brand up and a new company, and uh, we'll go in the learning business. And uh, so we did, and we we're, you know, that that was the uh, the beginning of my muse, which was probably. 2002, I guess it wasn't that long after we started BYs. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, maybe 2004, yeah. but uh, yeah. So yeah, because e-learning was really, really new there. Because like, yeah. I think I worked at Isopia 2000 yeah, it was to new. 2004. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was. But like I said, we'd, we'd had experience. We'd almost, by that point, a decade of experience. And, and so we understood training and learning. Yeah. And we understood e-learning. Um, so it wasn't a huge transition for us. And, and we just launched, we did some marketing and got into the business and it, it, uh, started to grow pretty rapidly actually. So. 
And so throughout all of your experiences, like, what do you think, like we talked about the challenge with like mental health when mm. you were super stressed out, but do you have also like some sort of business challenge that you came across that was like, how am I going to figure this out? Sure. Constantly. I mean, yeah, most of those, I mean, the ones that stick out are, are cash flow related, you know, always a <laughs> <laughs> guy in business school. I remember had, you know, when the smiley face first came out, he had t-shirts and Happiness is positive cash flow. I didn't understand it. <laughs> now <laughs> now <you> do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, um, it, you know, I, I, a couple I remember, I mean, in the staffing business, long story I won't get into, but uh, when the writer's strike happened in Hollywood, there was a staffing agency that had most of those people on contract. And they were also the middleman between us and one of the computer companies where we had 25 or 30 people. And it turned out they were French and the, the guys in France were defrauding the company. So it was like a Ponzi scheme, kind of. And wow. So what happened is when that cash flow stopped, the whole thing just imploded. And HP just ducked. So we were overnight out $285,000. No way. Absolutely. And uh, anyway. Wow. So I remember that one. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, it's another one of those instances where you get, okay, first of all, let's assess the downside risk. Right. Yeah. So, and I, I these are things, you know, it's not coincidental that I, I know how to do these things. I, I had a great education. You know, the Western Business School is a great school. Yeah. And so I had the techniques in, in, it's, you know, they say in, in things like the military or pilots or whatever, you know, in a, in, a, in a crisis, you revert to the level of your training, right? That's what training is for. And that's what practice is for. So, so a crisis and I okay, okay, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seen this before in business cases, whatever, what do we do, right? So, so you have the tools to be able to say, let's evaluate the downside risk. Let's identify what the critical things are to do now. Like, forget all of the other noise. Like, boil this right down. You know, is the patient alive? Okay, yeah. what do we do next? Right? And, and, and so we did those things. Um, you know, so the first thing is, hey, okay, how do, we, how do we finance this? We figured that out. You know, a lot of risk and pain, but okay, we're not going to die. Right? And the next thing was, okay, how do we get some of this money back? Or all of the money back? And... and a lesson we we learned then and, and Rick and I carried forward was, okay, we can't all get distracted by this. So I said, I'll deal with this. You just keep selling. <laughs> right? Yeah, we need the money coming yeah. in. And so uh, anyway, uh, the happy ending to that story is is through um, through some legal action and some wrangling uh, and working with our, our competitors because we're all in the same boat. Uh, our biggest competitor went out of business, but uh, we ended up getting all the money back. Wow. No yeah. way. Yeah. I won't bore you with the details, but uh, that's crazy. Yeah. So the one thing I want to talk about, John, is, um, you know, we we're talking on the phone before the interview and uh, we were kind of talking about the word luck and yeah. how, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, you're so lucky. And I want to discuss this concept of being lucky. Right. <laughs> so do you really feel like in your career with everything that you have achieved to date? Have you been lucky? What's happened here? I mean, <laughs> are you just in the right place, right time? Yeah, there are elements of luck, I think, and, and I think anyone anyone who's successful in in any endeavor will tell you that that some of it is pure luck. 
But I think the way the universe is structured, if you looked at it, you'd probably say I had equally uh, equal parts good luck and bad luck. Right. Right. Because, you know, it's like gamblers. People tend to tell you the lucky stories where, where things really worked out. I mean, I can tell you where, you know, hey, we got rained on 20 grand that we weren't expecting from this action or that action or this client who forgot about it or went bankrupt and we still had the money or whatever it was. Uh, I could tell you equally where, you know, the CRA caught up me on stuff that I didn't know I'd done wrong. Right. And 20 grand went out the window, right? It, it, so those things I think balance out. The, the difference is, and I think I was telling you, know, someone said, gee, yeah, I heard someone over, over, overheard someone saying to somebody, you know, every time I step in shit, it turns to gold. <laughs> and I thought, well, yeah, that's, that could be true from your perspective. But the reason I stepped in shit is because I worked really hard and saved up and bought cows. Yeah. And the cows are on land that I bought and there happens to be gold on the land. And I, I found that out and took advantage of it. So the luck was that there's gold on the land. Yeah. Right? But the luck that, that isn't luck that I had cows stepped in shit and owned the land. Right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, so that's the way I see it. You know, it's cliche to say you make your own luck. Um, but, but actions beget actions. You know, I learned really on in, in the training business, um, from one of my partners in, in New York and, and, you know, we used to call it dialing for dollars back in the telephone days, right? but you can just sit there and, and kind of, you know, see if things are going to happen or you can get on the phone and just dial, 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 talk to people, meet Make people, it go, out, go out and, and, and network. And yeah. So, so, you know, the phones don't ring because you send out a catalog or you put an ad in the paper. Oh my God, that's what I'm doing wrong. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. No, you you have to do the hard work, right? Yeah. And, and and if you do things, then good things happen, right? Yeah. And and if you don't take action, then nothing happens, because nobody else out there cares. No, it's true. It's one hundred percent true. So, do you think, like, when you hear someone say something like that, do you think, like, a did they know you when you were going through that whole stressful period and working crazy hours and no. whatever? Well, they knew me. Yeah, but maybe they didn't realize that situation because I think right. like you put in all of that hard work right. and yeah, maybe at that point in time it didn't pay off, but years later it pays off, but yeah. you had to go through that. Yeah, and it, and it's to them it's not visible and maybe that's related to part of that stress, right? Remember I said it, it, there are, I perceive there to be consequences, you know, to stepping up and saying, you know what, uh, gee, I'm having a nervous breakdown. I need to take six months and 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 you know, chill out or take yeah. drugs or whatever. And, and I think that's one of those negative consequences. So they, they don't see it because it hit it. Right. You know, there are a few people who Kelly clearly knew I and mean, my kids would tell you they knew. Um, but most, most people didn't and didn't ever see it. Yeah. Um, but, but I think there is that, there's that relationship there between um, managing that stress and, and then being able to make good things happen. Um, be, because you're perceived as successful and in control and stoic, yeah. you know, and, uh, you know, when I was trying to do the management buyout of the company and it looked like I was going to lose my job. I remember, I think you ever met her, but yeah, an Irish, uh, trainer slash project manager. Anyways, we said this was going to happen. And she just looked at me and she said, Oh, I knew you'd pull a rabbit out of the hat. <laughs> you always do. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> like, glad you had so much faith in the. I didn't know that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's it's um, I think it's a question. You know, even even our the last business that ultimately the business we sold, um, 
you know, you could call it an element of luck, but it wasn't luck. We, we got into the e-learning business. In the e-learning business, we leveraged that business to take um, the IT course that we were doing live classroom and, and consulting on, put it online. And uh, ultimately, the, the people who we were buying the tests from said, well, you know, we can't do the tests the way we were in this honor system. We have to, we have to now have them proctored. And, you know, Rick was smart enough and salesy enough to go, oh, tell me about that. Yeah. <laughs> what is that? Sometimes mean? it's key just to listen. Right. And uh, yeah. And then, and then also we had a good enough partnership that he said, I need you on this call. Right. Get, get on the call. And then uh, so we said, well, gee, could we proctor our own exams? And he said, well, if you can meet the requirements, was, you know, what do you have to do? And then he said, oh, okay. He said, well, he said, uh, could we proctor all your exams? And he said, well, we like you guys. Sure. Yeah. As long as you can meet the requirements. Okay. I said, when do you need three weeks? <laughs> <laughs> and then you're like, we'll make that happen. And we're in the proctoring business. Yeah. <laughs> and, but uh, that's also um, like hearing an opportunity and acting on it yeah. right away. Yeah. Being able. Not hemming and hawing yeah. about it. No, right? exactly. And, and going back to that, you know, um, the, that base level training and saying, okay, how do I evaluate this? How do I evaluate the business opportunity, the downside risk? How do we minimize the capital required, right? What do we need to do? Um, and, and, and that, you know, that wasn't the end of that story, right? I mean, in that timeline, two or three years later, the, the e-learning industry is diving, the IT staffing business yeah. is diving faster than, because it was creating the cash flow to build the proctoring business. And uh, the timing didn't work, you know? And back to good partners, I mean, I called Rick one time and said, we're screwed. <laughs> what do you say? No, we're not. <laughs> no, that's not what he said. <laughs> he went back to base level training though and said, okay, that's not an option. Yeah. <laughs> I said, I agree. It's not an option. So what do we have to do? And uh, so we radically transformed the business. We made, you know, a whole bunch of cuts that I didn't want to make in the other businesses. Um, we figured out where we'd get enough cash to keep going. And similarly, as I talked about before, a good partnership. I said, okay, I'll take care of all that. You go sell. Yeah. <laughs> sell faster. <laughs> <laughs> sell more. Right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, we just buckled down. And, and you know, in, in four years, we're able to crank that thing right around into a saleable business. But but with, you know, necessity, again, being the mother of invention, right? We, we People ask us, like, why did you do that? Why didn't you just pack it in? And we both said, I, like, we just didn't see that as an option. Like, yeah. quitting's not an option you know, by this time I've been running my own businesses for 30 years. I'm, I'm chronically unemployable. I'm not going to go get a job. <laughs> a, I, you know, I don't want to. And B, I'm 55 years old and no one's going to hire me. <laughs> so, oh, they can't afford to hire you, John. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, don't, I don't see this as an option. Yeah. Like, you know, um, and when you eliminate all of those other things, and I you know, probably read this other way, other places, right? When you, when you take away... The things that are out essentially right and say okay we're, we're going to focus on this and do this because we don't believe there's another option right this is the only we're going to make this happen because we have to right um and uh you know the result is good yeah obviously <laughs> <In the end. laughs> now you're kind of retired <laughs> yeah, kind of mostly <laughs> that's amazing pursuing um, my passions outdoors <laughs> that's right that's right so i'm super aware of your time um i have one more question sure. for you um, so if you were able to write a message on a billboard for the world, what would your message be? Hmm. 
Yeah. Um, gonna sound like a hippie, but uh, ultimately, uh, it's it's uh, love one another. Mm. You know, I, all this other stuff about success and everything else. I, I think, you know, there's you can get wrapped up in, in those things, whether it's material or measuring success some other way. Um, but but in the end, you know, we. We, there's so much we don't understand about life in the universe and all of those if you take that really big picture stuff like why are we here yeah <laughs> and, and we'll never know right um, but but the things that the only things you can take to end of life are your relationships um, and the positive things that, that you've done for yourself for others your family um, you know there's no we don't put luggage racks on ours. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. You know, so uh, so to me, I, I would I would say that right because if, if regardless of your your religious bent, most base religions have that sort of same theme, right? It, it's it's what's the difference between good and evil, good and bad, um, the force or the dark side. Yeah, <laughs> and it really boils down to 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 that. I mean, yeah, be good. It's true. It's true. It's true. You're almost this. I think you're the second person that has said not that exact right. message, but something very similar. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Um, so thank you so much for your time, thank John. You. I've enjoyed fun. this. I always love chatting with you. It's great. Um, so I would normally I ask people like if people want to find you online, where do they find <laughs> you? Um, I know you're on LinkedIn. Good luck. Yeah. You good luck. <laughs> good luck. I'm also going off LinkedIn. I am on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. But I never use it. Oh yeah, that's true. You're on Facebook. It's true. But probably anyone that listens to this, they could check out your profile. On probably LinkedIn, on LinkedIn is, yeah. is the best place to, yeah. to find. Okay, great. Well, thanks, John. Thanks, Enjoy Jack. your retirement. It's great. Thanks for lunch. <laughs>